Church, let's pray as we continue in worship. Father, we praise you for the truth that joy has dawned, God, and as we turn to your word in which we are reminded of how that joy dawned, God, we ask that you would speak to us. Father, this appeal has been made. Your word has been proclaimed. The promises therein have been sung. God, and acknowledged, we we ask now that you would speak. Lord, take your word that you have given us, and by the spirit that inspired this word, we ask that you would remind us of just your great, great name and of how blessed we are, we who are your children, how you are king. And we pray these things in his name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open them with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we near the season in our calendars in which we commemorate Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and having last week completed our look at the Gileadite deliverer Jephthah, we're going to take a three-week hiatus from the story of God's great salvation as it's conveyed in Judges to examine the birth, public coronation, and then the crucifixion and resurrection of the long-awaited deliverer, the Messiah who, as we've seen to this point, was promised by each of the judges that we've examined. This Savior would be like us as we've seen in every way, only without sin. This King would come in the most unusual way, usher in a kingdom in the most unexpected manner, and conquer His enemies in the most unprecedented display of power. And Right now, this king is seated at his father's right hand, and he is interceding on his people's behalf. And this king's name is Jesus. Do you know him? And would you allow me, in the time that follows, to introduce you to him? And I realize that the story that we are about to read is one often associated with a very different season. Uh, But while your Christmas tree, hopefully, is back in its box, ours is next to the street corner awaiting Uh, departure later this spring to the dump. Uh, Your wreath, I hope, has been replaced by a garland of spring flowers. I'm still convinced that the son whose birth we're going to study this morning surpasses the seasons, doesn't it? Jesus is simply king over all, not just Christmas, where we have so often relegated him. And so, at this point, let's read about this king and his first arrival as it's recorded us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 18. Matthew 8, 118, our author writes, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherded or the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And May God bless the public reading of his word. It feels weird, doesn't it, to be reading this text in April when we have so often examined it during the month of December and in the season of Advent. And yet I still believe in this record of Christ's birth, captured, conveyed to us by Matthew, I believe our author desired to communicate at least two gospel truths. Two truths with the first being that Jesus is the king over history. So beautiful how the final line of the song we sang right before we began declared this very truth. God's word is truth. And so Jesus is the king over history. And as a Jew writing to Jews, Matthew structures his story here in such a way as to show his original Semitic readers how Jesus' birth was unlike any before or after. Far from just another unplanned pregnancy, Jesus' arrival heralded change. And not simply that which distinguished one generation from another. Jesus' arrival was proclaimed and it proclaimed the fulfillment of prophecy made centuries prior. For Matthew, our author, this child born to Mary was the king over history. And I believe that he sought to communicate this to his readers as he demonstrated first how this king was promised. How this king was promised. You notice how he explains verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. All this took place. So having documented for us Joseph's noble reaction to Mary's condition and in his subsequent encounter with the angel who cleared up the carpenter's excusable confusion, Matthew inserts this narratorial explication of the angel's words just in case that we, his readers, missed his cues to this point, which unsurprisingly began prior to the verses that we just read together. In fact, Matthew's desire to communicate the promise of this king begins all the way back in the very first verse of his gospel as he explains how all that will follow, verse 1, is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So setting the stage for all that will follow in his gospel, Matthew directs us as his readers to the fact that this Jesus is the Christ. It's a term that in the language, the original language of the New Testament would have been used to convey the Hebrew word meaning Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of God's people in, in whom their history 
climax. The, the Messiah was God's promised deliverer, pointed to as we've already seen over the past few months by the judges. As we've seen, God's people sinned, and in sinning they rejected Yahweh, His will, His word, and His ways, and as they did so, He would punish them, drawing their attention to their sin and their need of a Savior. And as they did so, God revealed His people's inability to save themselves while promising them one day, one day a deliverer is going to arise who's going to restore their relationship with him, freeing them from their oppression and from sin's rule in their lives. And the judges, as we've noted, each pointed God's people to this promised Savior. And so this Jesus is the promised Christ. But more specifically for Matthew, he's the Christ, the son of David. And for his original audience, that reference would have immediately drawn their thoughts to God's promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where following the days of the judges, God's people requested a king. It was a decision reflecting, again, their rejection of God as their ruler. However, once again, God graciously provided for Israel, covenanting with this young shepherd boy, wholeheartedly devoted to him, that when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring from your own body who will come and will establish your kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in that promise of a sovereign savior who would reign for eternity, we see God linking the genealogy of this promised Messiah to the house and line of David. And so Matthew informs us that his gospel is a record of the genealogy or the origin of Jesus Christ the son of David. And then as we read earlier, he makes clear the connection between Joseph and David when he captures the angel's words, verse 20. And so this Jesus is the king promised to Israel as the Christ, the son of David, but he's even more intricately bound up in Israel's story. As we're told, he's also the son of Abraham. As the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham represented the source of God's people's heritage. Because prior to Abraham, there was no nation. Even during a season of Abraham's lifetime, there was no Israel. For Abraham, as you know, and Sarai were, were childless until God, in his great mercy, called this Chaldean to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will promise you. And then, there in Genesis 12, God spoke a promise. A promise that would come to define a people, sustaining them through desert wanderings, Seasons of foreign enslavement, even exile. God promised that I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, pointing forward to the day when God would send his Savior, the King, the Son of Abraham. All of this, Matthew desired we see Jesus is the promised king. And church, as we consider this record, I believe that his relaying of Christ's fulfillment of prophecy made centuries before reveals the fact that this child born was the king over history. He whose arrival in time fulfilled every prophecy surrounding his birth, even those made prior to his conception, reveals his sovereignty over all of it. How did the potato get into the pocket? It had to have been placed there by one sovereign over that pocket. And only the one who formed and remained distinct from time 
could control it and thus demonstrate his lordship over it. And as the promised king, Matthew reveals Christ to be king over history. I believe he also demonstrates this truth as he reveals that this king had a purpose. This king had a purpose. Now, I realize that in our postmodern age, that sentiment smacks of self-serving individualistic idealism. Because today, everybody has a purpose, right? I mean, we can all be whatever we want, and it's in the pursuit and attainment of whatever that is that we express what it means to be truly human. And yet, that's not the manner in which Matthew understood purpose. For our first century tax collector come disciple, Matthew saw purpose as divinely determined, as he conveys there in the angel's words spoken to Joseph, verse 21, because there calming Joseph's racing heart, the angel informs him that Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. In explanation of the child's name, the angel reveals the child's purpose. Jesus was the, the Greek rendering of an Old Testament name, Joshua which meant Yahweh saves. And so, true to his name's meaning, Jesus' purpose is to save his people. And who were his people? Well, Matthew's already made this clear, as we've noted. For this child is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's come to save those whom God foreknew before the foundations of the earth, composed of men and women from every tongue, tribe, nation. Does that include you this morning? Have you experienced God's great salvation, the salvation Christ came to provide? Or are you still determined to write your own story and rule your own kingdom? Friends, there has never been a child born like Jesus. He's the king of history. For no one could have fulfilled the promises he did unless they stood outside of time. He's also the king of history because in his purpose he reveals history's end. God's people saved once and for all from their sin. And in this glorious restoration of God's perfect relationship with his creation, we see the end of time as we know it, marred by hurry, waste, frustration, fear, and the return of God's original design, free from all imperfection. So what does your story look like? Is Christ Jesus your king? Here in Matthew's gospel, I believe he desired that we see first that Jesus is king over history. But then second, he's king over all creation. This is revealed, I believe, by at least three different elements in the text as we read. And first is the virgin birth. Now, this is one of those Judeo-Christian cultural givens that I would imagine we've all heard and accepted, but whose significance for many, its, its magnitude, has likely been stored right alongside tales of the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. You know, for some, we, we hear these cultural fantasies as such, and we file for some reason biblical miracles in the same drawer. It's an act that greatly diminishes the significance of what the scripture is saying, what, what Matthew has recorded here. Because if we view Christ's birth as described by the gospel author as myth, the story of some ostensibly historical event that serves to unfold a certain people's worldview, then its value lies more in the principles that this book we're studying espouses, and it's not in the salvation story that the gospel is presenting. In other words, if we view all of this in light of what men believe, then the Bible is just a great book of moral encouragement that will give it formatively influenced Western culture. However, its uses are fast being eclipsed as we move beyond its primitive legalistic 
laws, philosophy into an age today that's marked by moral and religious pluralism. But friends, I believe that Christ's conception occurred exactly as Matthew recorded, revealing the the truth that Jesus is the king over creation. Why? Because none but the creator could have stepped outside of creation's norms, his laws and forms, and, and come as he did. None but the supernatural living God could have passed life along without using the naturally necessary male and female participants. Only a God sovereign over creation could conceive a child in the manner that Matthew records. And then only God could have revealed this to his creation. Because where else could such a concept have come from? Something so completely foreign to the human experience. Only God could have brought about a virgin birth. And this supernatural occurrence reveals the truth that Jesus is king over creation. He's king over creation as revealed by the virgin birth, but also is revealed as we see it in the star referenced there by the Magi in chapter 2 and verse 2. Now, as you can only imagine, the, our day and age of science and technology, much effort has been put into trying to explain the astrological phenomenon here with very little consensus. Some scholars believe that this reference is to a comet, others to what has been called a planetary conjunction where Different constellations simply came together at a particular time that made them more distinct in our sky. A third option has been that it was a nova, basically stars exploding. But conjecture aside, the point that I believe Matthew was desiring to communicate here is how Christ's birth was heralded by the creation itself. And so just as Luke's gospel captured the angelic choir's proclamation of this new king's birth, Matthew records creation's signification of the same. And in a way, for the purpose of explanation, this birth announcement reminds me of my wedding program. So let me explain. Let me elaborate. Melinda and I got engaged the the summer before our senior year of college. So as you can imagine, I don't remember much from my senior year of school. My mind was firmly fixed on the upcoming celebration. It was such an exciting season of life, one that a young lady in our church is walking through right now that she'll remember little of as she arrives at this big day in May. But our families were all excited. Mine because their son had found such an amazing young woman to marry. Hers because this young man actually had a job. He'd actually finished school. And it happened to be that he worked at the institution that she still had a year to study. And so our promised nuptials promised them a year's worth of free tuition, which was a great thing. So everybody was excited for different reasons. But We were all excited, keen to celebrate this big day. Unfortunately for both sides of our families, they were still on different continents. And so their participation in the proclamation and the planning of this big day was limited. However, as we prepared, my parents graciously offered to provide the programs. Because my dad was directing a publishing house. He had ink and and, and presses and guillotines galore he had professionals who knew exactly what they were doing and so my parents celebrated their son and his new bride's life together by employing their knowledge gifts their their possessions their expertise to that end they printed the most amazing wedding programs on elephant poop paper yes i'm serious it was unprecedented i believe and most people had no idea how cool that paper was or where it had come from because they couldn't get past the quality of the work this was my parents sphere of influence this this was their realm if you will in which they ruled and friends in in a sense this is what i believe the star signified as it directed the magi 
to the site of the Savior's birth. Just as my parents' programs declared Melinda's marrying a printer's son, so too the star proclaimed the birth of creation's king as it shone forth into all creation, revealing the creator's sphere of sovereignty and his pleasure at the birth of his only son. I believe that the Virgin birth reveals Christ's kingship over creation, as does the star. And then third, the Magi. And I, we're all familiar that with the, Matthew's account here of Jesus is born during the time of King Herod. And what's interesting here is that, that the, despite this title, Herod really wasn't a king in the sense that Solomon or, or Rehoboam or Josiah was because he wasn't born of royalty. Herod was just the son of an Edomian adventurer, small ethnic minority within the Middle East. And he'd come to his title, not by birth, but by political maneuvering. He made himself useful to the Romans during the wars and the civil riots that had occurred in Palestine. And so he'd earned their trust, and he'd been appointed a governor in 47 B.C. Seven years later, because of his performance, he was allowed to use the title king when regarding himself. So he was a self-made sovereign, so to speak. And because he was, it's no surprise, he was incredibly suspicious of anybody and everybody that would have threatened his setup. He eliminated his wife, his mother-in-law. He eliminated his eldest son along with other two sons. At one point, it's rumored that Caesar Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. So this was the character of the man of whom the Magi inquired, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, whether the Magi were familiar with Herod or not, it's hard to say. Common sense would say no, because such a blatant reference to a competitor for the crown and one sovereignly sired, clearly not from Herod's loins, would suggest suicide on the part of those inquiring. And yet this is exactly what the Magi do, isn't it? And so I believe they had no idea about Herod's paranoia. As wise men, they'd simply prudently concluded that the best way to find a new king was to inquire of the current king. And it worked. Matthew informs us of Herod's crisis council with, of all people, Israel's chief priests and teachers of the law. It's a fact I find most revealing, as clearly Herod appreciated the messianic implications of the Magi's question, and his confirmations or his conclusions are only confirmed when his corroborators direct into the prophet's words, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. There's a quote from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And those religious leaders in directing Herod to that showed this promised king is going to arrive in Bethlehem. And then inexplicably, these leaders absent themselves from both Herod's presence as well as from the story. Apparently disinterested in the question. Or whether it was out of fear from the one who posed it, we can't be sure. But the religious leaders leave and apparently return to life as they know it, while Herod directs the Magi to Bethlehem with these instructions. As soon as you get there, let me know what you find, because I too want to worship him. And at that point, Matthew explains that the Magi proceeded to Bethlehem, and as they did, the star, that same one that they'd seen in the east, went ahead of them, directing them to the precise location of the child, whereupon they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him and opened their treasures presenting him with gifts of gold incense and of myrrh here in verse 11 of chapter 2 Matthew describes the magi's actions as worship and he does so using a term that that meant literally to fall down as in to fall 
before someone, prostrating yourself before another. And this act of homage, while familiar in Eastern society and not exclusively used for royalty, clearly denotes recognition of another's social superiority, an appreciation that we then see further revealed by the affluent gifts presented by these magi. Gold, as a presentation of ultimate value, frankincense was an expensive perfume burned during worship at this point in time, and myrrh, a spice that the patristic church fathers interpreted as symbolic of Christ's saving death and burial. So in this act of reverence, I believe Matthew desired for us, his readers, to see Christ's kingship, and not simply over Israel, although he was their promised deliverer, but over all creation, all nations, as promised by God when speaking to Abraham all those years ago. These foreign magi, these wise men, likely just Persian priests or astrologers, were directed by the creation itself to the location of its king's birth, where they too bowed in recognition of his lordship. So as a question, have you recognized Christ as king over creation? Have you seen in creation itself the evidence which the Apostle Paul declares renders us without excuse? Or are you still clinging to the belief that human beings are ultimate and that somehow we simply came to exist on this planet and over the course of millennia, this is how it looks. Developing communities, creating relational networks, constructing centers aimed at that sustaining human flourishing, all of which have continued to evolve across time such that today we exist as we do when we look outside the window. And if so, if this is where you stand, then you've got to also believe that you're the king or queen, depending on which you prefer, over creation. Because if in this worldview, people have to be ultimate, don't they? Humanity's ends are supreme, and they serve as the motivation for our interactions with one another and the rest of creation. And friends, if, if we're ultimate, then the principal purpose in life is to find fulfillment, isn't it? Unfortunately, how we define that end has become a challenge because we're also very different, aren't we? Now, at one stage, we might argue that in the past, these parameters could have been drawn from society at large, whereby the good of humanity was determined by the collective. However, in our hyper-individualized postmodern society, these values are viewed as unique to each person. And therefore, there's no such thing as the good for all. There's only the good for some, really, the good for me. In today's culture, everything is subject to the individual conscience. Morality, truth, good, evil, the kingdom of the world, friends, is an unstable place to live if your worldview has you seated on the throne. And this is why God sent Jesus Christ, His only Son, the King over all of history, who fulfilled every promise made about him as he came to his own and despite their rejection, accomplished his salvific purpose, saving them from their sin by dying on a cross, being buried in a tomb, three days later, rising from the dead. King Jesus fulfilled every promise and his saving purpose, demonstrating his authorship of history. He also displayed his kingship over creation as he came born of a virgin. So like us, his creation in every way except without sin. And his birth was announced by a starry host attended by foreign dignitaries proclaiming the gospel truth that his is not some culturally exclusive kingdom, but rather one that will be composed of men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Do you know this king? And do you belong to his kingdom? 
Or are you still attempting to, to reign over your personal protectorate? Friends, Christ's kingdom promises its citizens peace. And that's a peace that passes all understanding. Joy that defies life circumstances. Hope in the face of uncertainty. And gracious assurance that none can stop our king's advance. Or snatch us out of his arms. And if this is not where you find yourself standing today. As a citizen confident of your place in this king's kingdom. Would you? Would you today confess your sin and submit to King Jesus? And then, friends, for those of us who do serve this king, be encouraged. Be encouraged despite the realities that are around you. Our Lord remains the king of history, and he has already written its end, its conclusion, when he will return victorious to judge the living and the dead, taking those who are his, we who are his to live with him for eternity while casting his enemies out of his presence into a place that the scriptures describe as having marked by weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus remains the king of history. He's also the king of creation. And one day he's going to restore this broken world and remove all traces of despair and sin and sickness. Be encouraged, church regardless of how this last week looked. Be encouraged and take joy as you live for our King. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we are blessed to be called your children. Lord, and as we look at your word, we're reminded of how you do reign over all. And yet, Father, for those looking in from the outside, it might seem foolish when they contrast our life circumstances with our professed hope and joy, because they don't jive. Lord, and the hope that we speak of seems to make no sense, for we've placed our faith in a, in a king who we cannot see, who reigns over a kingdom that has no geographical boundary and has promised a victory over all and yet, God, this is a hope that we have been given that is evidenced in our lives in ways we simply cannot explain. Father, we may merely attribute it to your grace opening our eyes so that we might see how desperate we are. Father, for others who continue to run in the rat race of life pursuing their own ends, they may be distracted for a season seeking to pursue and acquire that which they do not yet have and that promises them something that, that they're not finding satisfying in the moment. But God, the moment that they acquire whatever that is, its emptiness will become evident and they'll be back where they started. Father, whether that be in a relationship, a position, material possession, Father, we cannot find that which we desire apart from you. Only Christ can reign and provide us with the peace that we desire. God, I pray this morning that there are any who have yet to acknowledge their need for Christ's lordship over their lives. An act demonstrated by confession of our sin 
and belief in Jesus, God, that this might be that day. Lord, and for we who are your children, who in this past week have been discouraged, possibly disillusioned, we thank you for a reminder that you still reign. And God, in this moment, no matter what we face, no one can unthrone our King. God, remind us of that truth this week, and may we live for His glory. We pray in Jesus' name.